I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We're backstage at Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. We've got a great show coming up for you. We've got Baron Vaughn here, also music from Prom Queen, and we've got Maria Bello here. The theme of this show is playing the part, and Maria, you're a well-regarded actor. I'm curious, when in your real life have your acting skills come in the most handy? I have to say a lot of roles, I played the really nice, understanding mom. And um, I have a 14-year-old boy, so <laughs> so um, it, it teaches me when I just want to kill him mm-hmm. to be a really nice mom. But now... Just to speak in a nice tone, you know what I mean? To be understanding. Will you play my son? Um, anything you want, Maria. Anything we aim okay. to serve here. Do you play soccer? Uh, I did, and my mom didn't show up to any of my games. Oh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Right. I'm, I'm playing my doctor self. Okay, okay, good. All right, well, uh, well there's going to be just a parade of characters out there on stage tonight. In fact, let's go do that right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with actress and author Maria Bello. Comic and actor Barrett Vaughn with music from Prom Queen and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. He's played the part of host in your radio. Let him play it in your heart. Luke Burbank. Wow. Thank you, announcer Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody, for coming out here at Revolution Hall. We have got a very fun show in store for you. Our theme this hour is playing the part. We have some notable actors on the show. We have Maria Bello here. Yes, indeed. We've got the hilarious Baron Vaughn. And I was thinking this week about that theme, about the idea of playing the part, and it reminded me of a time that I decided to play a part and sort of go deep undercover in my own life with pretty bad results. Um, What happened was uh, I had moved from New York to Seattle, and I wanted to buy a house, and uh, my girlfriend and I at the time, we found a house that we liked, and we liked it so much that we put an offer on the house before it even went on to the market. And so we'd effectively, and they accepted, so we'd sort of bought the house. But because of the way this real estate stuff works, we still could have backed out 
So the people who owned it and the real estate agent said, we're still going to have an open house just to get maybe backup offers or something. And I realized something, which was that even though we basically bought this house, they'd never met us. Like they didn't know what we looked like. And so I had the brilliant idea that we would go to the open house and pretend to be a random other couple, and then I would be able to get the dirt on if we got a good deal on the house or not. (laughs) I hear the suspicion in some of your voices, in some of your groans. So we go to the house, and they're having the open house, and we walk in, and for reasons that I still don't fully understand, I go up to the real estate agent and I introduce myself as Casper. (laughs) And um, we're chatting and I say like, hey, so you guys uh, getting any, you know, interest in this house or what? And I don't know why Casper talked that way, but (laughs) I was deep in the role, so. And the agent was like, "Uh, yeah, actually we have accepted an offer, but we had the open house scheduled, so we decided to just have it anyway, kind of as a backup thing. I was like, oh, yeah, this guy probably got, like, ripped off or something, right? <laughs> and he was like, no, it was a pretty fair deal, actually, for everybody. And I was like, oh, yeah, but what about the house? Probably, you know, falling apart, right? I don't know, foundation or something. And he's kind of looking at me like, what's up with this Casper guy? But I felt okay because, again, he'd never met me. He had seen my name on all the paperwork, but I thought he is totally not on to me at this moment, right? So I'm going back into my Casper mode, and I'm really in the groove, so much so that I don't notice this lady has come into the house, and she's sort of walking on her way to the kitchen, and she stops for like a half a second and looks at me, and then keeps going into the kitchen. And I'm in the middle of another Casper-related inquiry to this guy, probably about dry rot or termites or something, and the lady pops her head back around the door, and she goes, hey, you're Luke Burbank. (laughs) And I just totally froze. And I looked at her, and I looked at the real estate agent, and I looked at my girlfriend, who was already three steps out the front door, (laughs) jogging towards the car. And I realized I was completely busted because what I had not factored in was, at this time, my job was I had a nighttime AM radio talk show, and we were bound to have at least one listener, and apparently we'd found her. And normally I would have been so excited to meet my one fan. But she was really f***ing this up for Casper. So I looked at her and I said, Yeah, I'm Luke Burbank. Happy? And then I just looked at the real estate agent and shrugged my shoulders like, Crazy world! And then I just slowly backed out of the house. I, don't, I guess I don't really know if there's a moral to that story, per se. I mean, maybe it is that there's a fine line between playing a part and just straight up lying to people, and I may have lost sight of that. I would, though, like to say, if she's listening to that woman, my former fan, I am so sorry for yelling at you. Uh, I, that was Casper. Okay, I was deep in the role, so. All right, we're talking about playing the part tonight. We would be remiss if we did an entire show about the parts we play and we didn't utilize the tremendous voice talents of Livewire writer-performer Sean McGrath. Let's bring him out here. Sean. Hey, Luke. 
All right, Sean, here's what I have uh, in front of me. I have a list of all kinds of different characters that you have played during your 10 years on the show, okay? And um, what I'm going to do is fire them at you at random. Got it. And you are going to take on these different impressions while you are quoting the to be or not to be monologue from Hamlet. That was the idea. Yeah, you don't seem excited about it. Well, there's a lot of faith in the writer's department or a lot of sadism. I don't know which one, but we're going to see. We're, we'll see what happens. Okay, yeah. I, I want to mention, you do not know the order I'm going to go in. Random. I'm going to just wing them at you. Sure. And then uh, when, could I, go wrong? when I feel like it, I'm going to just say another one to you. Okay, are you ready? I think I'm ready. All right. So. All right. Here we go. Sean McGrath, <clears throat> to be or not to be, in various characters he has played over his 10 years at Livewire. Let us start with Ira Glass. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or to take arms against the seared troubles and by opposing in them to die, to sleep no more. Jimmy and Stewart. And by a sleep to say that we end the heartache, yeah, and the thousand natural shocks that that flesh is heir to. Just a consummation devoutly. Sylvester to Stallone. To be raised, you know, like to die to sleep. Uh, to sleep, perchance to, to dream. I like the rub. Garrison Keeler. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have. Shuffle off this mortal <laughs> coil. Must give us pause. There's a respect that makes calamity of so long life. I want to let this one go for a for, long time because it's so good. <laughs> for who would bear the whips and scorns of, of time? Uh, the oppressor's wrong. The problem's... Uh, baseball announcer Harry Carey. The pangs of this prized love allows delay the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy attacks. Uh, Christopher Walken. When he himself <laughs> might his quietest make with a bare bodkin, who would Fardell's bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread uh, of, Casey some Kasem. of something after death, <laughs> the undiscovered country. From whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others. Al Pacino. That we know not of. <laughs> Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Uh, Sean, Sean Connery. And thus the native hue of resolution is sickly known with a pale cast of thought and enterprise of great pitch and moment. Chewbacca. <laughs> Wow. Truer today than when the bard wrote it. Sean McGrath, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to Live Wire Radio. We've all got our parts to play. Ours is being the mildly amusing sound that comes out of your Prius 
while driving to get your gluten-free artisanal hacky sacks. You've done research, and that's exactly what all of you are doing right now as you listen to this radio show. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, who offer up this tip on goal setting. Make them small, realistic, and achievable, and you might actually reach them. So don't say, I want to be just like Gandhi. Say, I want to be less of a jerk to my cat. Or, or don't say, this year I'm running a marathon. Just say, this year I'm going to sit less. Doesn't that feel freaking doable? That's because it is. With Ergo Depot's sit-stand desks and active sitting solutions, you'll hit your goal in a single day. And then you'll be a better person, just like Gandhi. Visit ErgoDepot.com to start your transformation. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRI, Public Radio International. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, as we mentioned earlier, we're talking about playing the part tonight. And we've got somebody on the phone who knows plenty about that. Lacey Schwartz grew up a typical middle-class Jewish girl in Woodstock, New York. But it turns out there was something about her that was very atypical for a middle-class Jewish girl from Woodstock, New York. Something she didn't find out until she was a freshman in college. It's all in her great documentary called Little White Lie. She joins us by phone from Montclair, New Jersey. Lacey, welcome to LiveWire. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, when did you first have a sense that something about you was different? I never knew exactly what it was from an early age, but I think pretty early on, going back to even nursery school, I had a sense that there was something different, but I had grown up within my family, whereas kind of who they were was reinforced that it was who I was. And so, although I had a sense of it, I very much pushed those feelings away and was in denial myself for a long time about the truth. And the truth was that you are African-American, but you were told for your whole growing up life that you were white, right? Absolutely, yeah. I grew up with two white Jewish parents, and um, as the truth comes out, and the film obviously delves into, is my biological father was actually black. But this was not something... The, the fact that you had a sort of a different uh, skin tone than everybody in your family, this was not something that was totally shocking because you had a Sicilian grandfather who this was sort of pinned on? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was just kind of ways, there's all sorts of ways that we kind of tried to explain it, uh, and that was, that was the biggest one. Did he actually appear that his skin color could have been why you were African-American? I had never met him. I mean, it was literally based on photographs. Um, so, um, you know, it was kind of like, oh, well, here's somebody that Lacey looks just like. I mean, in, in reality, it didn't really look just like him, but it was just kind of, oh, this is where these kind of recessive genes could come from. And I really think in the end, as much as that was the explanation, people weren't really digging that deep, right? It was just kind of we accepted what was in front of us as truth. You know, like my parents were who my parents were, and that's, where I came from, and nobody really dug that much deeper. We were all kind of happy to accept it as what it was. Uh, so things really uh, took a turn when you applied uh, to Georgetown University, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think things really took a turn when my parents split up when I was 16. Uh. And so there were a variety of things that came after that that 
really led me to do more and more questioning, a few relationships, and then certainly when I was applying to college, because I think so much of it, and really what my story is about, which is very common for many people, it's a coming-of-age story, right? You grow up, and for all intents and purposes, you are who your family is. And then there was this idea of going out on my own, in particular when I went away to college, where who was I outside of my family? And I started thinking about that in particular because my parents had split up, and I was really trying, starting to ask myself, who am I if this unit that had defined me is no longer. But I, I saw in the film that you attached a photograph, which I guess was part of every application to Georgetown, and they just put you in the African-American category, even though you had not checked that box? Yeah. What was it like when you and your mom finally actually sat down and talked about this when you came home from, uh, I think it was your first year of college? It was tough. I mean, I think my mother was like, you know, as I said before, like denial is such a big part of my story, and I think we all had our own timelines of denial. And my mother was certainly the one who kind of had the most and had gone in the deepest. So it was difficult to kind of push her to really confront the issue and talk to me about it straight on. But, you know, once we did it, in certain ways it changed so much for me as an individual. But then in other ways, my my family and I didn't talk about it, but yet beyond the conversation with my mother. I didn't talk to anybody else in my family about it for over 10 years. How did your, your father, who it turns out you weren't biologically related to, but of course the man who raised you, how did he take mm-hmm. this? Um, when you say take this, what do you mean? Like, well, I mean, whole, how did he process, yeah, how did he process the, the information, the fact that, that you were the biological product of, of an affair and also that, um, you know, you were identifying strongly with the African-American part of your, of your, um, your biology. Yeah, well, as I said, again, you know, my father and I didn't talk about it for, from what I found out until over a decade later. So I think that the whole processing, you know, this wasn't, and I think many stories like this are, it's not just about like a moment of revelation. You know, did I have a moment where it was absolutely confirmed for me? Yes. But if I dig deep and part of the film is about, I think, really looking into how do these things happen and then how do we deal with it going forward? And so with my dad, I think he went through his own process which I can't document, you know, I wasn't a part of it, and it was more about, for me, what was my process of then finally talking to him about it so many years later. I'm going to ask a question here that I think is kind of dopey, but if you, have, <clears throat> if you have an answer for it, I'd be interested. If it's a bad question, you just, we'll just edit the interview <laughs> and make it not part of the interview. You've had this amazing experience of basically living as and believing that you were two different races what do you yeah. think your white self didn't get about race in this country? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that that's a dopey question. Um, Good, we'll know, leave I it think in. That I mean, more than anything, you know, looking back on my experience and now looking at kind of how I observe society and racial, you know, racial awareness is is that so many people kind of have a very racialized existence, and then other people don't have one. So even, you know, going back to how we were talking earlier about me growing up, and as I said, you know, I thought it was a great way that you phrased it, kind of growing up and having an awareness of my own difference, I, what I didn't have was an awareness of my own race. And so, you know, the kind of coming out of this, like, white, quote-unquote, white space and kind of gaining an awareness of what that difference was and what the kind of racialized existence that I was living within and giving it certain names, um, that was something I just wasn't aware of, you know, and I think that because I was grew up in a context where nobody knew how to talk about it, 
You know, nobody knew how to understand what other people's experiences were like in that way. And so for me, I grew up very confused about what I was experiencing and why I looked different and all of these different things. And obviously, there's so I mean, race is so complex, right? It's very much a social construct, and it really is very relative to the, the time and the place and, and, and what that looks like. But I think for me, there was lots of moments where there, it was a racialized experience, but nobody around me kind of knew how to talk about that. And so I grew up very confused about where I fit in and where I didn't. Well, the, the movie, I think, has a, has a really nice ending, which I won't give away for people. Um, but uh, I will just ask, where can people see the film? Is it making the festival rounds? Is it on uh, some streaming type of deal? How do they find Little White Lie? The easiest way to watch it is it's up on iTunes and Amazon right now where you can buy it or rent it. Well, Lacey Schwartz, thanks for being on LiveWire tonight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Lacey Schwartz. Her film is Little White Lie. We're talking about playing the part tonight. Speaking of playing the part, Prom Queen is the part Seattle musician Lini Ramadan has created for herself, playing cinematic 60s rock that would fit in perfectly in a David Lynch or Quentin Tarantino film. Prom Queen's latest record, Midnight Veil, vale, is accompanied by a full hour of short films that match the songs of what we old-timers refer to as music videos. Please welcome Prom Queen to Livewire. Baby, the 
Queen right here on Livewire Radio. They'll be back out in a bit. Their latest record is Midnight Veil. Our next guest is an actor, writer, and comedian who's appeared on Conan, Fallon, The Late Late Show, and recently released his own stand-up recording, Raised by Cable, on iTunes and Amazon. He's currently appearing in the Netflix original series Grace and Frankie, wherein he got to watch Sam Waterston and Martin Sheen make out just something not all actors can say. Please welcome the hilarious Baron Vaughn to Livewire. Hello, audience. Oh, okay, you're woo? Okay. I was wondering how you are, now I know that you're woo. I was backstage, at, you know, I bet this audience is woo. And some people went, ah! And that's just woo backwards. And I won't be lied to. <laughs> Things are starting to get good for me. Before that, I was at a very interesting place because I don't know where you are in your lives, but I was having a conversation with an insect the other night. And that is interesting because I was talking to it like it was an old enemy returned, just <gasps> Jeremiah D. Cockroach. Well, friend, we meet again. I thought I killed you with the shoe. Las Vegas, 1986. Except this time it was a spider, and I decided at the end of the talk that that spider could stay. Because I'm an adult. I'm in my 30s. I know now you actually need some insects on your side in life, especially if you want to make it through the night. Because when I moved into my apartment, there were nine spiders. I counted. I was like, what? That is ten too many spiders. And I killed all of them, felt good about it for a week, because that's when I found out that the crickets had been waiting for that moment. <laughs> and at first I was mad until I realized that I was their 
Abraham Lincoln because holy emancipation. It was Juneteenth as crickets came from corners I had never seen before going, sweet freedom, our eight-legged masters have been vanquished. How can we praise our savior? I've got it, boys. How's about we put on a concert every morning starting at 1 a.m.? He'll never sleep, but he'll hear our love. Let's start right now. And a one, and a two, and a... <laughs> 2 a.m. 4 a.m. And people say to me, People say to me, Baron, why don't you kill the crickets? Um, two reasons. Number one, they match my carpet, can't see them. Number two, I don't respect the music, but I appreciate the dream. That cricket wants to be somebody. That's why I learned to play the tiny whatever that is. It, I can't crush an insect that has a talent. A cricket can't do it. A firefly, can you smash that? No, their tails are powered by the dreams of the innocent. And a bee is a noble creature. You have never seen a bee that is not stressed out. It is behind in the middle of working a double. It is making honey, it is pollinating, and when it comes across to you, that's why it levitates in your face like it doesn't have time for you. Like it's trying to get around you at a crowded door. Just like, excuse me, can you, can you, I'm sorry, they're just they're holding up the, can you, can you, can you get out of the, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. That's what a bee's life is. But a wasp can go to hell because they don't pollinate, they don't make honey, but they will still sting you and they are arrogant about it. <gasps> a wasp is unemployed with a weapon. And that is a thug. Also, some wasps are insects. So, oh, you're an O crowd, okay. I always like to know what, what, what vowel sound people use to show their Dismay, you guys are an O crowd, because some crowds are like, hey, 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 some crowds are like, ee, ee, some are like, I, I, some are like, you, you, but sometimes they're like, why? Um, there are grammar jokes tonight, okay, that is a tangent, won't you co-sign math jokes too, guys? I just got back from the south, and boy, is my skin tired, you know, I... have really vicious allergies and um, actually I have an EpiPen in my pocket. That's part of my life. I was in the ER a month ago because I had anaphylactic shock from butter. <laughs> Which is great. I love avoiding dairy because no one knows what dairy is at any restaurant. Is, are eggs okay? Yes. What about mayo? That's not, that's not dairy. But it was grown on a farm. It's not from a cow. Plus, people add dairy to things just thinking it did you a favor when you didn't ask for it. We buttered the buns. You're welcome. Yes. I added some whipped cream in, in there. I know. I'm a hero. We go above and beyond here. And my allergies to pollen are vicious as well. Like, I go outside and everything itches. And uh, I'm just going to start calling my allergies my cops because they will probably kill me in a way where most people will say, well, why were you outside? <laughs> Double O. Okay. <laughs> Guys, I've been listening to a lot of funk music, so I've been thinking nonstop about space travel. Also, 
I like knowing things, so I never have to develop a personality. And I saw something that was those two things met. At the end of last year, science was like, hey guys, we discovered a whole bunch of new planets. Possibly inhabitable planets that we decided to call Goldilocks planets. Oh, science, you're so cute. (gasps) Well, this planet is made of gas. (laughs) This planet has oceans made of sulfuric acid. But this planet, well, this planet might be just right. (laughs) There's one I like a lot. It's twice the size of Earth. It has water. It has land. It's an average temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the average temperature of Earth. And scientists are quoted as saying something to the effect that we might be able to go down, though. And I love that. Because if we could sustain life on this planet, on another planet, it might mean there's already life on that planet. And that blows my mind. The conditions are right. And when I know, when we know for a fact that there's life on another planet, it's the end of hatred, guys. All of it is over. Classism, sexism, racism, done. When we know for sure there's life on another planet and we can finally, finally get together as one to hate that planet because screw that planet this is earth am i right because i've been watching the news and we are desperately in need of a new them once we have a new them we're finally us do you see what i'm saying i've seen the movie the greatest hate monger on this planet will be reformed the moment green things come down from space and ships what you guys are all good. Sorry about, what's it called again? History. That wasn't going well for three-fifths of you. Anyway, green things, we all agree? Okay, good. You get a rifle. You get a rifle. You get a rifle. You get a rifle. You get a rifle like a gun Oprah. You get a rifle. You get a rifle. Everyone look in your seats as a tech nine. So what say you? We finally as a planet stand as one. Let us unite and let's get these space n- because that's the first thing we'll call them. <laughs> we were calling that for too long. <laughs> um, I want to leave you with a character. I've been working on characters because you never know when Saturday Night Live will need more black men to play all the black women. So I am working on a bunch of characters. <laughs> this character, this is an... Uh, An old black southern woman in the water about to attack you. (laughs) Old black southern woman in the water about to attack you. Uh Someone from Atlanta agrees with me. <laughs> finally, finally, that's when you're going down. All right, thank you very much, everybody. I'm Baron Vaughn. <laughs> Baron Vaughn. Luke. Do you figure out that you can do a bitchin' cricket impression and then you write the joke around it? Or was that just a happy accident? It was, uh, it was me wondering why I suddenly had a lot of crickets. <laughs> And me being like, well, I did disturb some order in here. So that's what the bit was born from. And yes, the cricket impersonation is spot on, I believe they say. Yes. Across the pond. Cheerio.
you're in this new uh, Netflix show, uh, and you're a trained actor. But by the way, the show is called Grace and Frankie. Uh, some of you have seen it. We've got some fans here. You're a trained actor, yeah. but e even as a trained actor, are you nervous when you look at the script and this is a day where you have to be in an elevator with Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Sam Waterston, and uh, Martin Sheen? Yes, yes, definitely. I'm like, oh, me and a bunch of legends? Okay, I better know these lines before I get there. <laughs> definitely. Uh, and I, but, but the environment on set was so positive. And uh, the director of that episode was a man named Miguel Arteta, who's excellent. He's directed a bunch of Parks and Rec and a bunch of Office and a great movie called Cedar Rapids. So he brought this energy of excitement and joy on, on set. So everyone was in this great place when I did it. So uh, they made me feel very comfortable, which was awesome. But, but I mean, at some point, mm -hmm. are you thinking, like, you kind of can't believe that, you know, your job is to pick Jane Fonda up in this moment? Definitely, definitely. I, I mean, I love everyone that's there. You know, Lily, actually Lily Tomlin, uh, I was a big fan of Laugh-In, and uh, she did uh, Ernestine. Does anyone know who Ernestine is? First of all, I would quote her solo show, and she's like, that's from The Search. She was amazed that I knew it. And I, I said something about Ernestine, and then she snorted. She did the snort, and I almost burst into tears. i like, oh, that's really important to me. And I just found out that you doing that snort is going to make me cry because all my dreams have come true. And then you responded with a cricket sound. I recrunted. She was like... And that's how we find each other in a swimming pool. <laughs> Marco. <laughs> I just want to ask one last thing before uh, we, we let you go. Is it accurate that you have a podcast with Leonard Malton? Yes, it is. It is. What? My birthday buddy, Leonard Malton. We have the same birthday. It's called Malton on Movies with Baron Vaughn. I'm Leonard Malton. And uh, we, he plays Baron Vaughn. And uh, we just discussed three different movies that fit a theme. A good one, a bad one, uh, and uh, a sleeper that we think everyone should know about. It's how did you get, other than having the same birthday, how do you get hooked up with Leonard Maltin, of all people? An awesome uh, comedian and writer and actor named Paul Shear basically put it together. He reached out to me and said, hey, would you ever want to do a podcast with Leonard Maltin? I'm like, yes. There's a lot of S's in my uh, reply. Yeah. And we met up, and we had a good chemistry, and it was like, that's, that's the sound effect. It was just like, you know, popcorn, overall, Redenbacher. Um, tell me a little bit about your special, Raised by Cable. Um, oh, Does that, yeah. like, a, when you, you, I know other comics, you know, when they do their quote-unquote special, it's a yeah. big deal because you want to get it right, you want people to like it. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an album as opposed to a special, but I might okay. be doing a special pretty soon, maybe here in this uh, beautiful city of yours. Where did um, you record the album? What are you saying? Where did you record the album? Uh, in Los Angeles at the uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, but you're right. It's still a definitive set of like, this is an hour of my material. I have to figure it out. Uh, it was great. You know, uh, I mean, I call it Raised by Cable because clearly I flip through the channels a lot. And uh, that's how I'm the way I am. <laughs> yeah, what was the Lily Tomlin show you were watching? Uh, Laughing. Laughing. Rowan and Martin's laughing. Yeah. yeah. You may have been on a relatively narrow Venn diagram overlap of young yeah. African American men and those watching laughing. Yeah, I watched laughing and Patty Duke and 227. That was my life when I was. <laughs> Some of Jack Hayes' finest Just work. Me. That's right. Yeah. Well, Baron Vaughn, thanks for coming on tonight. Thank we you really very much. appreciate All it. Right. That's Baron Vaughn. His latest album is Raised by Cable.
Livewire is sponsored by New Belgium Brewing, where authentic Belgian beers, environmental stewardship, and social responsibility all live together under one roof. We know that sounds like a lot, but it's a huge roof. More information at newbelgium.com. Hey, if you like what you're hearing and perhaps you'd like to hear even more of it any time of the day or night, consider subscribing to our podcast for extended interviews, studio sessions, and lots of other cool stuff that people who don't know what a podcast is don't get. More information at livewireradio.org or over at iTunes. We are talking this week on Livewire about playing the part, which is exactly what Maria Bello has done to great acclaim in films like The Cooler and A History of Violence and on TV as part of a little show called ER, which you might have heard of. But she's also picked an unlikely role lately, that of trying to get us all to change how we think about the relationships we're in or even used to be in. It all started when she wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times a couple of years ago about her own life. That piece went viral, as they say, and it's now been expanded into the book titled Whatever Love is Love. She's here to talk about it. Please welcome Maria Bello to Livewire. Thank you. Hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) This is a fun audience, and it's probably because there's two bars outside. Is it true? This is the most lubricated audience in public radio, and we're proud of that. Lubricated. All right. Um, the title of this uh, a book you wrote came from your kid, right? What was the context for the conversation you guys were having? Uh, well, m- when my son was 12 years old, two years ago, he asked me uh, who I was in love with because he had a feeling I was. And um, I was terrified to tell him because it was my best friend who was a woman who's like a godmother to him. And the funny thing is an interviewer asked a couple weeks ago, because I said, oh, he was laying at the end of our bed. He was actually laying in a blow-up bed because my parents were in the next room in his bed. And the guy was like... That's good, by the way. Why? Kids need to know that a lot of people outrank them. And the fact that your parents got the bed... I'm with you. That's classic Philly family. Absolutely. That's and, legit, and I think and, that's a good thing. And this interview said, he was like, so, you and Claire were in the bed? And he was at the bottom of the bed? I was like, no, she wasn't in the bed. The girl, I was like, what am I going to do? Say, like, I'm looking for the keys? I mean, <laughs> he was, <laughs> yeah, it was wrong. So he, he asked you if you were in love because you were Twitter-pating or just seemed in love, and what did you tell him exactly? I said, finally, I said, Claire, and he said... I was terrified what he would say, and then he broke into a smile, and he said, Mom, whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. (laughs) That was a very... That was a very inclusive response from your 12-year-old. Well, he goes to a progressive school in L.A., so okay. what do you say? I have a feeling it's like Portland, to be honest. Yeah. Similar sensibility. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you then wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times about that conversation, and it went all over and was commented on like crazy. Were you surprised at the response that it got? I was completely surprised at the response that it got. I thought it was just going to be a passing thing. And most people who wrote back, we had 273,000 Facebook hits in the first hour. People saying, I'm a whatever too. I have a whatever family. I'm whatever Explain what a whatever is. Um, The definition of whatever is um, a lack 
of emphasizing anything by a label. And for me, the idea was, you know, Facebook last year added 50 new gender definitions be besides male and female. 51, I I'm telling you, if you look them up, you're at least 15. I'm at least 15, <laughs> you're definitely a cis. Oh, yeah. C-I-S. Yeah, Cis. yeah. Do you know what that means? I do. Um, well, okay, I don't know what the C-I-C stands for, but I know that means the most boring kind of person, right? <laughs> like a male identifying, born in a male white You're body. Right. How do you know that? This classic cis. <laughs> <laughs> You're way ahead of me. Uh, uh, so, so it seems to me that uh, what you have really created in your life and what you write about in the book... We're talking to Maria Bello, by the way. Her new book is Whatever, Love is Love. By the way, you let 12-year-olds write the title of your book, Whatever's Gonna Get In There. That's you know? so true. Like, Mom, whatever. Um, it, it would appear that the, the thing that's... And I don't, I don't know if it's changed about your life or if this is how your life has always been, but you don't define the relationships that you have with people based on whether or not you're having sex with them or there's a physical connection. So your, your son's father... You consider yourself to still be in a relationship with him, right? That's right. Explain what that looks like and, and how you came to that idea. Um, well, I just like really chill people. <laughs> and I think like they could have all been undercover stoners. I'm not sure. But male or female, I would say, um, you know, there's something about uh, loving someone and your relationship shifts and change and we're all fluid and people can call themselves sexually fluid or just fluid in general and they love who they love and I'm happy to say that my dad my son's dad will be my partner for the rest of my life because we share a child together my mother will be my partner for my whole life we share things together that no one will ever share so um, I'm a whatever but did you just get lucky with all of these undercover stoners because everyone would like to be on better terms with the people that they used to be married to or have kids with and aren't together with anymore. Like, is there something that you've been able to do in your life, you think, to keep those relationships more functional and, and sort of continuing on as opposed to what a lot of people have in their life? Uh, well, listen, I, I think a lot of people want to have that. And I think it's a choice to have that, really. Um, and, and for me, it really was a choice to claim these partners in my life and really to see how people evolve just like labels should evolve. And in the end, the only labels you sh should have are the ones you give yourself. And that's what I do with my partnerships. Uh, do you have a label that you feel accurately describes what your sexual orientation is? Um, like I said, I have about 15 of them. Yeah. And in Facebook right now, it's um, so inclusive, in fact, that you can fill in your own gender as you wish. So I'm trying to figure out a term to fill in that gender. Any ideas? Well, cis is taken. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I guess whatever, right? I mean, that seems Whatever. To be, I think they should add a whatever. You might need to trademark that. I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do with we the actually gender did. identity. You did we trademark did. Of course it? we did. <laughs> I trademarked my son's words. And he said to me, um, you know, you so seriously do, I, do, do I own part of the company? I was like, uh, yeah. And he was like, will I be able to buy a Lamborghini when I graduate from college? I was like, I don't know. I don't think so. What is the letter like to the trademark office when you say, I'd like to trademark the word whatever? Whateverloveislove.com.
Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Hold on. Hold that thought. Maria Bello is here. She's got a book out, Whatever, Love is Love. Don't try to steal that website. She's got it trademarked. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you like the term actress or actor? I've always hung up on this because I know that the decision was made a long time ago to stop referring to females who act as actresses. That's sort of a way of diminishing it, some people think. But then I wonder sometimes if if it's also annoying to call everyone an actor because then it's somehow confusing. What, what do you go by? I totally understand what you mean. I must be honest. Like, I say actor because it's like the, you know, the non-sexist thing to say, but a lot of times I slip and I go, I'm an actress. I mean, actor. <laughs> um, so, so I'm not quite sure. I, I feel like they're interchangeable in a way. Facebook has got to get another category for that. They do. They have over 50 Gender things you can... Gender fluid actorish. That's exactly right. How has this, uh, the, the, the article that you wrote, the book, the awareness that you're in a relationship with a woman, how has that impacted your career as, a, as an actor, if at all? Um, well, you have to admit, a lot of men think it's really hot for two women to be together. So they're definitely more interested in seeing my films. I really? Think, I, I think that's right. And you'll take that? I'll take it. No. <laughs> the, the truth is that, um, you know, people think about Hollywood as this, you know, fake place. And I want to say 99% of the people I've met in Hollywood are the most open, gracious, curious um, drivers of human rights. And um, so I, I feel lucky to be a part of my community. Um, you were planning on being a lawyer, right? How did you end up being an actor? Um, I went to Villanova University and I studied international women's rights. I was working at the Philadelphia Women's Law Project and... Um, the then, classic pathway to being on the show <laughs> ER. Exactly. Being like a tough woman on TV. Um, and then I uh, had a crush on a cute boy named Drew who was taking an acting class and I was like, I want to take that class. I had no idea I could be an actor. And I took the class and... Um, a couple of months later, there I was with two trash bags filled with clothes and $300 going to New York City. And I kind of made my way. And you made your way into so many really great films and great television. Of course, a lot of people remember you from your time on ER. I'm wondering, after you were on that show, did you ever have the unfortunate occasion to go to the ER? And was that awkward? <laughs> Uh, let me be honest. This is the honest to God's truth. We were in Utah two weeks ago for a book tour. It was raining, and on the side of the road, we saw a car upside down with a police car, and I'm in high heels going to my book event, and Claire and I run out of the car, and we go up to the cop. We're like, oh, my God, is everything okay? What can we do? He's like, no, we're good. We had the fire department. We're good. I still think I'm a doctor. <laughs> I still think every accident I see, I can help someone. It's not true. Yeah. I can give them moral support, <laughs> give them a pillow maybe. If they, if they need to be empowered as a woman, that's something you can help them with. <laughs> Man or woman. Yeah. You've got that handled, but as far as actual, do you at least know CPR or something like that? Nothing. Zero zip. <laughs> I took like the child CPR class that you're supposed to take. I don't remember. It's a miracle that kid's alive. <laughs> uh, well, Maria Bello, it's been great having you on the show. The book is whatever. Thank you. Love is love. Thank, Thank you, for you so me. much. <laughs> Maria Bello, as our guest tonight, 
uh, is, as I mentioned, well remembered as Dr. Anna Delamico from ER. But that was all the way back in the 90s, and depictions of female doctors on TV have changed a lot since then. So we thought we'd give her a chance to play a character more in line with the current medical roles available to women on primetime television shows. So now, Livewire presents Maria Bello as Dr. Harmony St. Femme. Coming this fall to NBC, the story of a woman who is also a doctor, but also mainly a woman. I am the chief of staff here at this hospital, and my views on women physicians notwithstanding, I find your attitude most threatening while also being irrefutably sexy. Knock it off! I'm the best damn doctor you have, and yes, also an intimidatingly attractive woman with salon-quality hair. So back up and let me perform this cutting-edge procedure that no one's ever thought of with no oversight whatsoever. Damn you, Dr. St. Femme. You're right. Now get in there and save the Pope's life. But she's more than just a genius surgeon. She's also, as we previously mentioned, a woman. A maverick lady woman. If she were an animal, she'd be a majestic stallion. But she's not a horse. She's a woman with complicated issues. I'm going to need two pints of zero negative 10 cc's of beta serum, a less complicated relationship with my father, a CBC Chem 7, and a bottle of Pinot on ice. This lima bean isn't coming out of this kid's nose by itself. At Legacy Misogyny Hospital... The patients aren't the only ones with an open heart. Look, I'm scrubbing in to help. Tell me what to do. Listen to me, Dr. Brian Swoon. I need you to tell me that you love me without me saying it first. I need you not to try to fix every problem I talk about. I need you to just listen and say, yeah, that's terrible, but you'll figure it out. I need the occasional thoughtful gift to show that you're thinking of me. And damn it, I need you to learn how you properly catarize a wound. And if you could work just a little harder to find the little man in the boat, I'd consider it a tremendous favor. It's not brain surgery, Brian. Okay, okay, I get it. I'll get you some flowers tonight. Thanks. This, this guy's dead, by the way. I have never lost a patient on the operating table, and I'm not about to start now, okay? He, he bled out, doctor. Don't you die on me. I've grown too attached to you, Pope, and your complex and poignant backstory to lose you now. Now breathe, damn it, breathe. Yeah, no, I'm calling it time of death, uh, like... You are calling nothing, Dr. Swoon. This is the Pope. I want mouth-to-mouth now. This patient will survive, or my name isn't Dr. Harmony St. Femme, the best damn doctor who's also a woman in the hospital. Yeah, his head fell off. It just totally fell off. Oh, my God. Maria Bello is Dr. Harmony St. Femme in Finding Uh, Harmony. Girl doctors doctoring doctors and girls and hearts and other things in hospitals. Whatever. Maria Bello. Thank you. Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and Andrew Harris right here on Livewire. You always wonder, people who are legitimately famous like Maria, when they're in the middle of something like that, if they're questioning a lot of the decisions in their life that led them to the point of being on this stage. But weren't we lucky to have her? All right. Please welcome back prom queen. 
Queen, right here on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, now featuring nonstop flights from Portland to St. Louis. That is 178 less stops than Lewis and Clark had to make, with 100% less chance of getting attacked by a buffalo. More information on how Alaska helps you stay connected nonstop at Alaska Air. Dot com. Well, announcer Jason Rouse, that was quite an hour. Host Luke Burbank, that was a big hour. That was fun. So we talked about playing the part, and we talked to yeah. so many fun, interesting folks. Yeah. What, uh, what was your takeaway? What did you learn? I was blown away by everybody. I think uh, Maria Bello uh, mentioning uh, that Facebook now has 58 um, options for, to, 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 for your gender. And I went ahead and I looked at the list to find out what I was. And I'm not on there. <laughs> at all. Like, I'm in the weeds. And you're, that's not an option. You're the, you're the snowflake of gender. I might be. So I'm, I might be as unique as my mother has always promised me that I am. Well, that's nice to hear. So I feel... So it's sort of a win... Lose win for yeah, me, but ultimately a win. That's good. I, well, let's look at it like that. What about you? Well, I learned during Sean McGrath's 
series of uh, impressions yeah. whilst reading Hamlet that a staging of Macbeth just starring Wookiees would be surprisingly <laughs> watchable. Like McBaca. Or however you would figure that out. So coming soon to a theater near you. Anyway, that's our show for the night. Thank you so much. We'll see you all next week. Our thanks to our guests, Maria Bello, Baron Vaughn, and Prom Queen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hommeister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom, Dave Jorgensen, and Ben Landsberg. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and Sean McGrath. We say farewell this week to Graham Nystrom, our technical director. Our house sound by D. Neil Blake. Lighting by Jillian Tablet. Photography by Jenny Baker. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Culture Coalition, and listeners like you find beautiful people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Dear LiveWire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show, so you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.